0: The 49 El Dorado with the 42-inch tail fins was the first sign of trouble. As the cars rolled in, the powder blue T-Birds, the Studebaker convertibles, the Bel Air hardtops, Stewart knew it was going to be a long night. He was working at Rudy's Diner, a retro drive through restaurant outside of Oshkosh, Wisconsin, with a jukebox playing doo-wop and 50s rock and roll an outdoor movie theater showing black-and-white horror films, and car hops on roller skates delivering trays of burgers and onion rings. The caravan of classic cars, the Oldsmobile Rocket 88s, the two-tone 56 Lincoln Capris, meant that Rudy's was graced with a visit by the Wisconsin Classic Cruisers, a club of men in their 60s recapturing their youth by crisscrossing the state in their meticulously restored vintage automobiles, Stuart hated them, vehemently. Who ordered the Fruity Rudy parfait and the Big Bopper burger? said Stuart, skating among the cruisers. Stuart hated saying the names of Rudy's menu items, especially the Fruity Rudy parfait. It was intensely demoralizing. A balding man in a 56 Buick convertible, whose little remaining hair was slicked across his head with pomade, claimed the meal, which he closely inspected before accepting Stuart's tray. I distinctly asked for extra pickles, said the man, pointing at the Big Bopper burger. Instead, I received two. Well, said Stuart, normally you get one pickle, so two is extra. May I repeat myself, said the man. I asked for extra pickles, plural, meaning, in addition to the single customary pickle, two or more additional pickles. Therefore, at the very least, I would expect to receive three pickles. Yet, tragically, I have only two. Stuart took in a deep breath and counted to five. A therapist taught him this technique after he kicked off the hood ornament of a 53 Pontiac chieftain. I apologize, sir, said Stewart through gritted teeth. I'll bring you your extra pickles right away. It was so demeaning, this job, so demoralizing. Stewart wondered why he'd ever taken it. He was once an Olympic pairs figure skater, winning the bronze in 84 in Sarajevo. But that was so long ago, a distant memory. Now, he was on roller skates in Wisconsin, delivering fast food to baby boomers in James Dean blue jeans. While Stuart was in his late 40s, the other car hops were high school girls in poodle skirts, chatting with their friends in the parking lot in between serving the customers. For them, this was just a summer job, extra money for clothes or cds or a car when rudy's closed in the winter they'd be back in school and stuart would be bagging groceries or telemarketing a decade ago he was sometimes asked to do commercials or endorsements but those offers had long since dried up the world had forgotten about stuart nickel hey stuart said stuart's manager who was 18 through the kitchen window. After the next customer, can you put the new movie in the projector? We're showing I was a teenage werewolf. Stuart nodded and added exactly one more pickle to the Big Bopper Burger on his tray. Runaround Sue by Dion and the Belmonts played on the jukebox, and Stuart cringed. Sue was the name of his ex-wife. Rudy's Diner was designed in the space-age architectural style, called Gookie, with a zigzag roof, jutting boomerang shapes, atomic motifs, and eye-catching pastel colors. This was how 50s architects envisioned the future, an era of flying saucers, vibrant color, and anything goes abandoned. The next millennium was far more antiseptic and drab than they could have possibly imagined. Stuart returned with his tray to the balding customer in the 56 Buick, and the man immediately peered beneath the sesame seed bun, the Big Bopper burger. He noted the one added pickle and shot Stuart a look of pure hatred. "That will be 675," said Stuart, unzipping the money belt circling his waist. The man grabbed the tray and stuffed the burger into his mouth, droplets of sauce and melted cheese squirting onto his leather motorcycle jacket. I believe you owe me a free meal, said the man, his words muffled by the wads of ground beef and sesame seed bun, stuffed inside his cheeks. Well, sir, said Stuart, patiently, we corrected our error, so there's no real grounds for a discount. In fact, you received two extra pickles, free of charge. That's ridiculous, huffed the man. It's an expected courtesy that if your order is butchered, you receive a free meal. It's how business is done." Stewart could not believe this man. Butchered? Stewart would show him butchered. He'd grab the man by his leather jacket, yank him out of his 56 Buick convertible, and smash his face with his roller skates, like Heather Graham in Boogie Nights. Unfortunately, Johnny Angel was playing on the diner's jukebox. Who could possibly stomp a man's skull while listening to Johnny Angel? First of all, said Stuart, I don't think that's a standard business practice. Second, it's simply not our restaurant's policy. The man finished off his burger and swallowed a spoonful of the fruity Rudy parfait, scowling at Stuart as he removed the stem of a maraschino cherry from his lips. "'I demand to see your manager,' he said." Sixteen years ago, Stuart Nichol was one of the premier Pairs figure skaters in the world. He and his partner, Vivia Perlinera, won the U.S. Championship in January of 1984 and were the American hopefuls for the gold in Sarajevo. They were like the famous ballet duo of Fontaine and Nureyev on ice, a symbiotic partnership rendering emotion into movement with devastating grace and power. Stewart was 30, a respected veteran, Vivia was a flashy 18-year-old phenom, and together they fused into one dazzling, unstoppable force. Their signature routine was set to, will you love me tomorrow? performed by the Sherelles, which they capped with a poignant, heartbreaking death spiral, and when the last chords of the song died out, the audiences would catapult to their feet, cheering and chanting with religious fervor. As Stuart and Vivia collected the hundreds of flower bouquets littering the ice, Stuart's wife would watch from the upper stands, silent and unsmiling, her crooked mouth contorted by jealousy. On the ice, her husband would effortlessly intertwine with Vivia's lithesome teenage body, his hands fluttering over her revealing sequin costume, his movements in perfect synchronicity with hers. But, at home, in bed, Stuart transformed into a clumsy, bumbling amateur, unsure of what to do with his hands, with his hips. Inevitably giving up, after a few futile thrusts and rolling over to his side, falling fast asleep. His wife would lie awake beside him and think of Stuart on the ice, with Vivia. Every leap, every stroke, perfectly in time, with hers. She was certain they were sleeping together. The day of Stuart and Vivia's Olympic performance in the short program, Stewart's wife confronted the duo, and announced she was seeking a divorce. She grabbed Vivia by the hair and threw her to the ground, calling her an ice-skating slut, and had to be removed by Yugoslavian security guards. Stuart and Vivia, clearly shaken, made several key mistakes and settled for the bronze. A month later, they ended their partnership, and Stewart left the sport entirely. The gentleman in the Buick convertible wishes to speak to you, Stewart said to Tiffany, his manager. About what, she asked. One of life's great tragedies, he said. Eight years after Sarajevo, at the 92 Olympics, Vivia and her new partner, Hash Holden, won the gold, skating to Ravel's Bolero and Bizet's Carmen. Stewart watched the gold medal placed around her neck, and a dive bar outside of Oshkosh, while the other patrons watched a Badgers basketball game on a different screen. Even on the grainy low-resolution TV, the gold was so much shinier, so much more impressive than the bronze that hung from a peg on his living room wall next to the car keys. Six months later, in that same dive bar, Stewart watched footage of the Siege of Sarajevo on the evening news, Snipers in the outlying hills shooting at the petrified civilians running across the street, throwing their arms to the air when they reached the sidewalk, thanking God for their survival. As he saw the images of the gunmen and the bodies of their victims littering the streets, Stewart thought to himself, These are the people who once cheered for me. These are the people who once threw me flowers. Stewart delivered a tray of Big Bopper Burgers to a family in a station wagon and skated past his 18-year-old manager, who was fighting back tears as the balding man in the Buick shouted at her. This is an outrage, said the man, shaking his empty fruity-rooty parfait. This is consumer fraud, a vile, wanton deception. Stewart shook his head and glided toward the storage room to get the next movie for the outdoor theater. Such drama, such animosity, and over what? A single pickle. This was how tedious his life had become. One missing pickle, and the world suddenly collapsed. On his way to the shed, Stuart passed a teenage girl in a poodle skirt with a long blonde ponytail plugging the jukebox with quarters, flipping through the pages of golden oldies before making her selection. Normally, a girl like that would be an anachronism, something out of Peggy Sue Got Married, but at Rudy's, it was par for the course. Stewart figured she must be the granddaughter of one of the classic cruisers. Excuse me, he said to the girl, if you don't mind me asking, what song did you choose? She turned toward Stewart, brushed the bangs from her face, and blew a bright pink bubble, which grew impossibly large before bursting onto her chin. Will you love me tomorrow, she said. Just like that, her song came on the speakers, soft electric guitars and reverb-drenched strings setting the stage for Shirley Owen's dusky voice. Tonight you're mine completely, she sang, and Stewart was transported back 16 years to the ice of Sarajevo, when the same song had played on the arena's PA, and he and Vivia, had started their routine. The stands were packed that day, but once the song began, the universe contracted until there was only Stuart and Vivia, two bodies moving as one, stroking the ice, effortless and free. The Shirelles added their doo backing vocals, and Stuart hoisted Vivia into the air, propelling her into a tight aerial spin that she landed... perfectly. As Stuart stood there, transfixed in front of the jukebox, he could feel it in his lungs, that same sharp sting, when he held his breath, closed his eyes, and dug his toe-pick into the ice, launching himself into the stratosphere, free from the gravitational pull of the Earth. He stayed there, spinning in outer space, and the oxygen left his body the sharp sting almost unbearable, his lungs ready to burst. Then, somehow, impossibly, he returned to land, to the earth, and when he opened his eyes, there was Vivia, right beside him, smiling, and the crowd erupted, and the universe expanded, and the world exploded with flowers, the beautiful flowers of Sarajevo, flying from every direction, And Stuart could smell them, even now, standing in front of the jukebox. He could smell them fusing with Vivia's perfume, with the electric air. And he wondered where they came from. So many flowers, thousands, millions, filling the universe with their tantalizing fragrance. And when the routine was over, after the heartbreaking death spiral, Stuart and Vivia ended up in each other's arms frozen in their embrace, staring into each other's eyes. And for that one moment, before they separated to wave to the crowds, to collect their flowers, they were bound together in an unbreakable bond, impervious to gravity, to atomic forces, to the inescapable pull of tomorrow. The song ended, and the fantasy faded, and Stewart found himself balanced on roller skates, holding an empty plastic tray. Now the speakers played Fats Domino, and the girl, with the blonde hair and the bubblegum, had vanished, leaving him alone in front of the jukebox and the monotonous prairie of Wisconsin. The balding man in the Buick was gone as well, and Stewart checked in on his manager, who was standing by the kitchen window her eyes puffy and red. He said he was reporting me to the Federal Trade Commission, said Tiffany, choking back tears. Don't listen to him, said Stuart. He won't do a thing. Did you see his car? He's obviously compensating for his lack of manhood. Stuart set his tray on the ledge and gave Tiffany a warm hug, gently rubbing her back, and she smiled and wiped the tears from her cheeks. Thanks, Stuart, she said. I'll put in a good word for you for employee of the month. Stuart left Tiffany and headed for the storage shed to retrieve I Was a Teenage Werewolf for the Outdoor Theater. Passing the jukebox, he thought about putting some quarters into the machine and playing the song one more time, but decided against it. Maybe tomorrow, he told himself. There would always be tomorrow. The change wane heavy in his money belt. Stuart skated past the T-Birds, past the pink Cadillacs, and as he weaved in and out of the teenage carhops and poodle skirts and ponytails, he scooped up the trash that littered the parking lot, paper napkins and plastic cups covering the ground like flowers on the ice of Sarajevo. dying town called Fortune Falls, nestled on the edge of nowhere in the southern Wisconsin Prairie. Fortune Falls' economy was based on the elaborate mazes that drew thousands of visitors from every corner of the Midwest, and earned the town the nickname Maze City. Most famous were the corn mazes, twisting labyrinthine passageways cut into the outlying cornfields by two rival companies, King Minus and Wesley Douglas. My father worked for King Minus for 30 years until he injured his back, and it was assumed I would become a Minus Man myself. Instead, I got a job with Wesley Douglas. In Fortune Falls, there were two kinds of men, the Minus Men and the Duggies. Though there was no apparent difference between the two, my father raised me to believe that Minus Men were smarter, tougher, and more industrious than the Duggies, just as every minus man raised their child. The split between the two factions was so divisive that cross-company dating was strictly prohibited, and so minus men married the daughters of other minus men, creating an unbroken chain of maize company inbreeding that stretched back to the turn of the century. If a minus man was caught in the back seat of a car with the Dougie girl, well, it wasn't pretty. I know because it happened to me. Twice. In high school, I fell in love with Paulina Krumbakova, the daughter of Czech immigrants, both employed by Wesley Douglas. My sophomore year, I was caught in Paulina's Nissan Sentra by my father and was forbidden from ever speaking to her again. The following summer, we were caught half-naked in my Honda Civic, and after my father had a lengthy discussion with Mr. Kumbakova. Paulina was sent to live with her grandparents in Montana. I applied to work for Wesley Douglas the day after she left. My father, of course, was furious and kicked me out of the house, but my mother placated him and we forged an uneasy truce. I was allowed to return home, but not a day went by without my father loudly bemoaning the indelible shame I had brought on our family. I raised you to be a Minus man, he'd say, and instead, I get Judas Iscariot. My father's latest rants concerned Wesley Douglas's hiring of Mexican migrant workers to help us catch up with King Minus when we fell behind schedule. Our town was mostly working class and white, and the Minus men thought we were opening the floodgates for cheap foreign labor, costing the locals their livelihoods. At first, the duggies were equally resentful of the Mexicans, but after the initial racial slurs and fistfights, the slow, methodical task of building mazes gradually reduced the veterans' brazenness to quiet indignation. The migrants kept to themselves, and it became easier and easier to pretend they weren't even there. We were working at full tilt to get the new maze done in time for Halloween, when throngs of tourists would descend upon our town to solve the latest puzzles. This year's theme was A Hundred Years of Flight, and the maze depicted four major stepping stones in aviation. The Wright Brothers' first aircraft, Charles Lindbergh's Spirit of St. Louis, a modern jet airliner, and a space shuttle. I was assigned to the Spirit of St. Louis. The maze-building process, like the maze itself, involves a series of false starts and unexpected cul-de-sacs before the end is reached. The latest snafu involved in an error in translation that resulted in the Mexicans adding the nose cone of the space shuttle Discovery onto the right flyer. It wasn't their fault, but my coworkers still regarded it as indisputable proof of the migrants' inferiority. Maze building ain't in their blood, said Walter employed by the company for thirty-five years. Ask anybody. It's genetic. I listened to Walter every day, yammering on about the decline of this and the decline of that. To hear him talk, you'd think American society had become utterly depraved ever since his grandparents danced the Lindy Hop to Benny Goodman records. Now, the spirit of St. Louis, that was an airplane, he said, clearing away the outline of a fuselage with his machete one day, I got tired of Walter's lunchtime diatribes and left our usual picnic table to eat my meal in peace. I wandered along the perimeter of the space shuttle Discovery and noticed a migrant worker, a girl about my age, resting against the billowing cornstalks. Her cotton dress was soaked with perspiration, and she looked exhausted. I offered her some Frito-Lays, and she shook her head no, but I insisted she hesitantly accepted a handful of chips, politely munching them one at a time. Though I didn't speak Spanish, I sat beside her and gave her the rest of my lunch, sliced carrots, a tuna sandwich on soggy bread, and a can of generic soda, called Best Yet Cola. As the girl slowly nibbled at the food, I lay on the ground and gazed at the tall grass, swing-dancing in the wind. After that, I would always pack extra food into my sack lunch and wander the half-finished maze during break time in search of the girl. I tried convincing myself I was being altruistic, but the truth was, she reminded me of Paulina, and it comforted me to be near her. I bought an instructional tape on speaking Spanish, but it proved to be far more difficult than I imagined, and I gave up without finishing the first section which was getting to know you. I contented myself to greet the girl with an hola and sit beside her in the shade of the maze as she ate my snacks, the only sound in the rustling of the corn stalks and the crackle of carrots against her molars. During these siestas, on the grass with the Mexican girl, I would often think of Paulina, of the first time we met at the old folks' home in Madison. The home had a large performance space, and I had come with a friend of Paulina's to watch our high school's jazz band. As Paulina, her friend, and I listened to Count Basie and Duke Ellington charts in our ground-level seats, the elderly residents watched from the balcony, their vacant expressions unmoved by the wild horn stabs and blistering swing rhythms from the drum kit. At nine o'clock, the attendants wheeled them to their rooms, and when I glanced to see their reaction after Mood Indigo, The balcony was empty after the show paulina needed to find a payphone so i accompanied her on a search of the premises the old folks home was vast and confusing and soon we were lost in its brightly lit antiseptic hallways the halls were eerily silent no nurses no doctors no residents just the hum of the fluorescent lights above us and we became irrationally anxious, as if the elderly residents would suddenly burst from their doors and attack us, like some awful horror film. We abandoned our mission of finding a payphone and simply looked for a way out, but every turn brought only another long, immaculate, brightly lit hallway. Winding through the halls, we realized why we were so anxious. We were lost in a place where people go to die. After making yet another turn, we heard a loud rustling sound and Paulina screamed, clutching my body and digging her fingernails into my skin. I too was frightened, but then I saw the source of the noise, set improbably in the wall to our left. It was a glass aviary, filled with curious, brightly colored parakeets. Paulina saw the birds a second later, and we both erupted in nervous laughter. Chuckling at our fears of old ladies on walkers waiting to murder us. After a minute of joking about how foolish we were, we grew quiet and intently observed the parakeets, who had grown still and silent. We pressed our faces to the glass and stood there for what seemed like hours, us staring at the birds, the birds peering back, both sides wondering. Why the other was lost in this brightly lit hallway, surrounded by death. The arrival of the migrants necessitated the hiring of a translator, and so our manager, Worthington, was constantly followed by a bespectacled man in a bow tie who interpreted all orders for the Spanish speaking employees. When Worthington said, Christ Almighty, show some hustle, the translator would repeat his words in Spanish in a low, timid voice, reducing Worthington's red faced imperatives to polite suggestions. Un poquito más rápido, por favor," the translator would sputter. Muchas gracias. The maze company housed the Mexicans in an old canvas circus tent on the edge of town, providing them with pieces of particle board so they could divide their living spaces into individual cubicles. Every morning at 5 a.m., a caravan of flatbed trucks transported them to the worksite, leaving only mothers with newborn children beneath the big top where once a calliope played, there was now nothing but infants crying. The night before Halloween, we finished the maze, and the company threw us a party to celebrate. I knew my lunchtime companion would be leaving soon in search of more work, so I bought her something to remember me by, something inexpensive but poignantly symbolic, as all good gifts should be. I tracked down the translator, and had him explain to her the story of Theseus and the Labyrinth, where Theseus entered a brutally complex maze to slay a bull-like creature called the Minotaur, all the while unraveling a giant ball of string. So, after he killed the Minotaur, I said, he just followed the string back out. It led him back home. The translator finished my story, and I presented the girl with her present, a ball of brightly colored yarn. This is for you, I said in case you run into any minotaurs. The girl accepted her gift, leaned forward, and kissed me on the cheek. She said something in Spanish, and smiled. She says she understands, said the translator. Great, I said. What should I say now? How about, espero que algún día nos volvamos a encontrar. May we meet again someday. That sounds good, I said. But, you say it. I smiled back at her as the translator repeated the phrase for the girl. Her lower lip quivered and she looked down at the ball of string, fidgeting with it in her hands. She turned and walked away, disappearing into the maze. The day after Halloween, All Saints Day, I worked the concession stand near the maze's end, selling caramel corn and candied apples to the hungry crowds exhausted from hours of wandering. I kept a watchful eye on the exit, hoping the Hispanic girl would emerge from the eight-foot-tall cornstalks like the ghosts of ballplayers in Field of Dreams. But after three hours of nothing but Illinois farm couples and suburban teenagers, I resigned myself to accept she was gone. At ten o'clock, I finished my shift and wandered off into the new maze with a flashlight, exploring the fruits of my summer's labor. The cornstalks were festooned with orange and black streamers and fake spiderwebs, and every now and then a dead end would feature an informative plaque on some bit of aviation trivia. The record for the largest wingspan belongs to the Spruce Goose, said a sign hanging around the neck of a scarecrow. It made a single mile-long flight in 1947 and never flew again. The first time through a new maze was always therapeutic for me. It was like New Year's Eve in a way, sort of starting over. In a month, construction of the next maze would begin, and I'd start the cycle anew. Another year of being lost, maybe, but for now, it didn't matter. The air was crisp, and the maze was a virgin planet. As I was reading a brief synopsis of the Hindenburg explosion on a bronze plaque, I noticed a strand of yarn resting beside my feet. The yarn snaked along the grass and disappeared around a corner, and I curiously followed its path. It led me out of the maze and continued through the makeshift parking lot, camper vans and station wagons clustered together in an open field. I soon realized the trail consisted of many strands of string tied together, and I chased it for another hundred yards before it ended at the top of a steep hill. There's nothing here, I thought, holding the frayed end of the string in my hand. I heard a low rumbling in the sky, and looked up to see a plane gliding effortlessly through the air, its lights briefly converging with the stars. Its path brought my gaze to the opposite side of the hill, and I saw, for the first time, a thousand flickering lights, inverted stars shining on the field next to a deflated circus tent. They were candles, placed by the migrants to honor their dead in this place so far from the graveyards of their homeland. They don't even have Halloween, Walter had said one day. They call it the Day of the Dead. From high atop the hill, I looked on as the last of the migrants left the shrine to their ancestors and curled up in a sleeping bag, huddled together with family members for warmth in the freezing November air. Tomorrow they would be gone, a steady procession of eight passenger vans bound for warmer climates, for strawberry picking, for dishwashing, for lawn care. I thought of the girl, and Paulina, and the caged birds, and I wondered if the string could ever lead us to the end, and if the end even existed. I rubbed the frayed tip of the yarn between my fingers, lost myself in the fabric of the northern sky, and watched the plane's lights disappear into the heart of a winter constellation.
1: Well, I'm no- dust is thick upon these floors and how long has that box been behind the door it's a time for lets Stay out with the old. So I take these memories and sweep them under the carpet, under my bed or in the back of my closet. I. Still have the...